Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's the week before Memorial Day weekend, so we've got a special three-segment show for you this week. First up, Christina Fernandez. Her work is included in the Hammer Museum's post-renovation and expansion debut exhibition, Together in Time, Selections from the Hammer's Contemporary Collection. It's on view through August 20th. Concurrently, the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth is showing Christina Fernandez Multiple Exposures, a survey of Fernandez's career. It's up through July 9th. The show is curated by Joanna Supinska and Chan Noriega. A fine catalog was published by the California Museum of Photography at the University of California, Riverside, which organized the show, and the Chicano Studies Research Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. Amazon and Bookshop offer the catalog for about 50 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Fernandez is a photographer whose work examines migration, labor, gender, and Mexican-American identity. On the second and third segments, Endless at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and Bridget Riley Drawings at the Hammer in Los Angeles. Christina Fernandez, after the break. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Endless, curated by Nolan Jimbo, brings together artworks that touch upon the concept of infinity. This focused exhibition features key works from the MCA's collection that approach the infinite through painting, sculpture, drawing, and photography. Learn more about the exhibition and plan your trip to see Endless at mcachicago.org. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. And we're back. Christina Fernandez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, hello. There is an at least 30-year-old narrative around the conjoining of your lived life and, and you as an art maker that goes something like this. A childhood experience of an anti-Vietnam War demonstration turned violent. You were there as a small child, and all of this magically motivated you to challenge majoritarian power in your art. 
And in the art world, of course, I think it is often taken for granted that a person, no matter how young, in such a position naturally ends up as an artist and naturally ends up challenging dominant narratives in her work. <laughs> and I'm always a little suspicious of art world narratives. Well, I mean, of course, it's not that simple, obviously. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to tease out a bit. I mean, you grew up in a family with artists, but what maybe brought you in your own independent adulthood toward wanting to make work that was visual and to addressing the world as as you considered it and wanted it considered in your work? Well, I mean, part of that narrative is a little bit true. I grew up in a Chicano activist family. I grew up on picket lines and didn't have a grape or a scrap of head lettuce for most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, my grandfather on my maternal side was one of the founders of LULAC. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a political family and I also grew up in an artistic family, which left the gates open for me being an artist. I declared I was an artist when I was about five years old. I told my mom, I'm going to be an artist. I had been going to painting and drawing classes at a local weekend school for kids. And I really enjoyed and spent most of my time, most of my childhood at the table drawing and painting. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, at least part of that narrative is true. Of course, it's more complex. As I continued to be a creative person, you know, at one point I thought I'd be a fashion designer because, well, it seemed like a way that I could use my creative energy that would bring some money to the table. So I actually spent two years at L.A. Trade Tech studying fashion. I soon realized that, yes, I, you know, I have I have some talent in that area, but not the passion that was needed. There will be some fashion in your work in future years. Yes, yes. And so I needed to pivot because I realized I didn't have the passion that it would take for something like fashion design. Incidentally, I was there at the same time as Rick Owens, who was a friend of mine. And I saw how brilliant he was. And, you know, I decided, no, this is not for me. It's for Rick, but not for me. And so pivoted and decided to go to art school. And I ended up at UCLA. Which I think is going to come up a lot. I think, as you've noted, and as we'll discuss, UCLA was, was really important to the work you would eventually make. I wanted to talk first, though, about activism and the relationship of your work to it. So in the United States, and especially in California, photography matured as an activist medium. Carlton Watkins was an activist photographer. There were, there were ways in which he, in the 1860s, sought in 50s, late 50s, sought to push the American nation in, in California with his work. Later, Ansel Adams, the same way, 80 years later. And their activism was crucial to constructing whiteness, even though European Americans don't often recognize that in their work. Did you think of your interest in art and photography as being within the context of your family's activism and perhaps an extension of it? I think it was an outgrowth. So, you know, when you're brought up in an activist household, I liken it to being brought up Catholic, right? It definitely influences your identity, your being, the way you think, whether you accept or reject, right? I very definitely accepted my parents' point of views, their progressive leftist point of views, and grew 
up in, you know, an environment that supported not only those views, but also my artistic and creative passions. So, yeah. Well, let's dive into the work. There is a series you made in 1988 while still a student at UCLA that features both you and a family whose seven-year-old you were tutoring. Um, It's a series known as the Alienation Series. Was that specifically intentionally autobiographical, or should we see in that body of work you already beginning to do something that will be important across your career, and that is the construction of character and narrative? Well, to better answer that question, again, you know, I I mentioned that I'm kind of a storyteller. I was, you know, tutoring this young woman who came from a Guatemalan family, and I could simultaneously see the commonality, the love for family, the strong presence of women in the family, and yet the differences in our culture, you know, her being first generation, me being fourth generation her coming from Guatemala, uh, or her family coming from Guatemala, my family solidly Chicano, Mexican-American. And I was simultaneously also experiencing a bit of alienation at UCLA as well. So I was very much in between space, you know, in this in-between space, between understanding who I was as a Chicana at UCLA, still, you know, very much place where the majority of students were white, and then also not quite fitting in with this young woman and her family because we were, of course, Latinos, and there's some connection there, but her family was recently immigrated to the U.S., and me being fourth generation, of course, there are differences in our assimilation and acculturation to, you know, even the English language or just being living in Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, I think that series begins to talk about those things. Worth noting for listeners not familiar with California history, you know, that was Pete Wilson's California. That was a white majoritarian supremacist period. I mean, not that there haven't been a lot in California's history, but Wilson was running for Senate and for governor on explicitly white supremacist narratives, laws, ballot measures, those kinds of things. 1988 at UCLA is not 2023 at UCLA. Oh, no. Yeah, no, very different. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in that series, you you were constructing multiple images into single prints, and there are characters, there's story, there's narrative in those pictures. Did you know you were building narrative and presenting characters at the time, or is that something that as you made work as a student and afterward you came to realize you were doing it again and again? Well, you know, I had this interesting process for that series, which is I would go to the family home. It was really an apartment and I would photograph them and photograph their surroundings, the hallways outside of the building, the interior, all the family drama that was happening. And then I would go home and photograph myself. So sort of simultaneously documenting their life, but also my life. And then when I showed the contact sheets to my teacher at the time, who was Joyce Neumannis, she was um, Robert Heineken's wife. Uh, he was on sabbatical. And she taught at UCLA. Yes. She was visiting there to uh, be a sabbatical replacement for her husband. And uh, she, you know, she was looking at my contact sheets and 
thought that these in-between spaces were really interesting. So actually what caught her eye was, you know, half of one image and half of another with a frame line in the center that I had printed and made it into a small 8 by 10 print. And we discussed this and, uh, you know, I went about creating these images that were half one thing, half another, basically. Uh, half, you know, the sort of documentary images that I was creating in their space. And then, you know, the other half being my sort of self-portraits. And that's how that series came about. Uh, you know, Joyce Neamanis was at the time a cameraless photographer and yet, you know, an incredible teacher and was very, you know, observant, I think, very uh, engaged in what her students were doing. And yeah, that became a really kind of seminal moment for me. Lots of UCLA things in those paragraphs, including cameraless and compound images and whole lot of UCLA there. In the spring of 89, so while still at UCLA, you made an, an installation. And initially, it was a sculptural physical installation wherein you took earth and dirt and soil, all from your parents' yard, and placed within it index cards that had typed references to major activists such as Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, as well as typed references to injuries that they had suffered at the hands of corporate and state power. And you took that information from newsletters that the UFW, uh, that the United Farm Workers published. And I think you only installed it in a classroom for one day. And then six years later, you returned to it, recreated the thing and photographed it. Six years is a pretty long time. Why did you return to it? Why did you think there was something in that idea? Well, I mean, partially the reason I returned to it was it had been up for, you know, such a short period of time and such a small group of people have seen it. And yet there was a lot of work that went into creating that piece. And so when I graduated, I actually got a, a job grant writing at a community art school in Lincoln Heights called Plaza de la, de la Raza. And subsequently decided a few years later to go back to school to get my master's degree. So I ended up at CalArts. So I think it was, you know, one of my first graduate crits. I had, you know, been familiar with Baltz's work and the use of the grid, right? And decided that I would use the same cards that I used in the installation as a sort of landscape and miniature. So the the paint behind the index cards sitting in the soil is blue. Therefore, there's a horizon line in the, yeah. Yeah, and it's actually, a, you know, a really cheap paper backdrop that was put on a table and then I put the dirt on the table and then each image shows my brother planting the index cards into the soil. And uh, they, you know, I made them into five by seven color photographs and then presented them as a grid for a grad crit at UCL, I'm sorry, at CalArts. And then you, I guess, reprinted it in 2020 in the, in the, in the work that is extant and known today. Really foundational piece. I think a lot of the ideas in that piece we're going to come back to again and again. I've mentioned narrative and character making a couple times. So I guess I want to transition into that a little bit by asking who were Guillermina Telez and Maria and what informed your creation of them? 
Oh, well, Guillermina Teas is a play on William Tell and the, you know, the myth of William Tell. And uh, I sort of Mexicanized it to talk about uh, Soldadera, who uh, was captured. She was told to shoot an apple off the head of her daughter. In the actual photographs, the daughter is a chola, who is, you know, sort of an urban figure in Los Angeles usually Mexican-American. They have a very specific way of dressing. So the soldadera is represented by me, and as is the chola. But I'm attempting in that story to create a lineage between, you know, these fierce fighting women of the revolution, the soldadera, and the chola, eastern Los Angeles. So before we get to Maria, here you are creating creating characters and you are embodying them. You know, it is, it is you in these pictures. I suppose that if you are an historian and you always like to have an understanding of where things come from, it would be very easy to go, oh, Eleanor Anton, the king of Solana Beach. Were you thinking about or interested in Anton in these years? I was interested in Anton. I was inter- interested in Cindy Sherman and Carrie Mae Weems and, you know, multiple female photographers. Yes. Definitely. Longer, extend, more extended narratives across multiple pictures in Anton, though. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 when I look at the pictures of these years, especially the Maria's Great Expedition pictures from 95, 96, they seem to me like not, 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 not only mining Anton, but kind of taking more seriously Anton's successes than maybe Anton initially did, and that you're making more considered conceptually complete photographs and and maybe telling a more artist determined specific story rather than allowing a viewer to run away with a narrative the way Anton would. Why don't I let you introduce Maria's great expedition? What is that, that, that series of pictures? And then I'll ask a couple of specific questions because it's one of my favorites. Maria's great expedition is the story of my great grandmother on my mother's father's side. (laughs) So she immigrated from Michoacan and ended up in El Paso and traveled throughout the Southwest. And it's basically a photo narrative of her life that is reenacted by myself. So I play her in those photographs. And each photograph represents a moment in time that is talked about in the text panels that accompany each image. So I first developed the narrative for Maria's Great Expedition, which involved, you know, taking a lot of oral interviews of my relatives who knew her, and then reading books about the Southwest at the different times that, you know, were are represented in the photographs, Vicky Ruiz, Rudy Acuna, developing a narrative of her life, but also simultaneously presenting you know, the social, political, uh, historical context of her life. And then the photographs were developed from uh, the text that I developed. And uh, the photographs are obviously reenacted. They're staged. I worked very hard to make the photographs resonate with the time that they're supposed to depict. Although you know, by the second photograph, I was coming to the conclusion that uh, I wasn't going to be able to do it perfectly. Oh, what is perfectly anyway? (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, seamlessly, I should say. Yeah. yeah. 
seamlessly. So I decided, you know, this story is similar to a lot of people's stories about migration. And so I decided to include anachronisms in some of the photographs to sort of hint at this is a reenactment. This is not a photograph at that time. I am impersonating basically my great grandmother, but this is, you know, a story that's contemporary as well. There is, for example, in one picture, the bumper of like a 1990s truck. Exactly. (laughs) So one of the things about the series that particularly interests me is that it offers up or presents Maria's relationship to to metaphorical whiteness. In in the mid-1990s is when the field of whiteness study exploded into academia. I mean, it had been in academia since the late 70s, but it really gets embedded across many departments in the mid-1990s. And so across the series of pictures, we see references to whiteness. Sometimes it's laundry and bleach. Sometimes it's Maria wearing white as she provides labor that provides corporate wealth and political power. Were you interested in how whiteness was beginning to define itself as you were making this series, beginning to define itself academically as you were creating this series? I don't think I, yeah, no, I was not aware of that. I think what I was really doing was uh, asserting this story within the Southwest, right? We think about the Southwest and Manifest Destiny and, you know, this this sort of story that I'm retelling in a way or reenacting is in direct answer to that, right, about the Mexican presence in the Southwest and the story of migration of many, many Mexicans at that time uh, because of the revolution. So I wouldn't say I was, you know, directly interested in what, what you're asking about. Interesting, because I do, I do, I mean, maybe maybe because I work on whiteness, I mean, it, I, I find it in the work. It's a really, there is historical critique there. For me, more about part, for me, it was more about this process of understanding who I was and my identity and looking at the past and where I came from to understand myself. And I think that's in a, a lot of the early work. It, it, it is. In fact, it's a perfect transition to your Untitled Multiple Exposures series from, um, from the late 90s. And that's a series in which you use a tool you'd used before, 11 years before, um, the making of a print from multiple negatives stacked on top of each other to do something conceptual and self defining. So this technique, if you will, this picture making strategy goes back to the 19th century, of course, but at UCLA in in the Robert Heineken era and and, and in the circle around him, it became a really powerful, still powerful conceptual strategy. So appreciating that these things are always easier to understand in hindsight, right? Why do you think that object-making strategy continued to interest you 11 years after you first explored it? Why do you think it fit your interests? The the way that I layered images in the Untitled Multiple Exposure series was in camera. So, oh, you know, all entirely in camera. Entirely in camera. Oh. So these are images taken from say film and layered over say you. <laughs> so, okay, let me explain that the process a little bit if this doesn't get to a uh, yeah, no 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 it's great okay so what happened is i had traveled to oaxaca i was troubled by you know witnessing the racism towards indigenous people i didn't know how to express what i felt the, all the complex emotions that i had surrounding that 
I came home and started looking at uh, photographs of indigenous women by the, you know, the big Mexican photographers like Manuel Alvarez Bravo, uh, Gabriel Figueroa, who was a cinematographer, uh, Nacho Lopez, a journalist, and eventually also Tina Medotti, who was not Mexican, but photographed Mexican women. And what I did was, uh, you know, photograph these women in portrait close up. So I re-photographed these photographs from books onto film, onto 35 millimeter film. I kept really copious notes of the process, plate numbers, you know, direction that they were facing, all of that kind of thing. And then I rewound the film, reloaded the film, and went into studio and photographed myself, interacting with the latent image. So there was a very, very much a chance of, you know, things not working out. The image could be off register, I could be facing the wrong way. Maybe, you know, my face wasn't in the spot it needed to be. And so I shot quite a, quite a lot. And so it was all done in camera. As soon as you said in camera, I started thinking of your film budget. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I shot quite a lot. There's a lot of contact sheets. And I managed to get eight images that I thought were pretty interesting. They, they, They certainly are. Were you interested in pointing to the multiplicity within individual narratives? Were you... What was it that the technique allowed you to access that you were trying to access? I was trying to create, you know, a density and a space on the two-dimensional plane to -hmm. represent the complex emotions that I felt from that experience of traveling to Oaxaca and witnessing the kind of racism that I think was very casual, very much accepted back then. There's a lot of that there in the eye position, for example, of the source image in you that are just slightly different enough and it charges the image with what you're describing. Sorry. So, you know, how do you represent such a complex emotion? I could only think of, you know, layering images in this way. I, I could have, you know, included text somehow. Photography is interesting in that there is multiple ways to convey meaning if you know the medium well enough. And and I think that's the key, is knowing the media and how it speaks and how it can be pushed. And I think I've always done that in my work. Summary of the Uber right there. Yeah. Because you do you do different things in different I mean that's that's exactly it. Yeah. Yes, I do different things with every series. And you know, part of this has to do with what I want to communicate and how I think photography can communicate it. So, you know, although when you say photography, people almost naturally think of one thing, you know, they usually think of documentary photography or photojournalism. But I think I've been working outside of that for a very long time. And, um, you know, part of it comes from going up, you know, going to art school and being initially a painter and a printmaker. And especially with printmaking, understanding the use of the photographic image in in printmaking. Well, so speaking of bodies of work that look visually nothing like even concurrent work, your Manuela S-T-I-T-C-H-E-D pictures, Manuela stitched from 96 to 2000. Um, These are pictures, um, many of which are facades of, or or let me say the outsides of buildings. Uh, They look like facades. They represent facades. Buildings wherein textile labor was was taking place. We've mentioned Louis Baltz before, but um, in ways that I think we're going to discuss in a moment. 
This is one of the most interesting riffs on, on, on Lewis Baltz um, anybody's made. Baltz had made a series in the 70s called New Industrial Parks Near Irvine, California, which I think we've referenced once before. It's one of the great American photographic achievements of the 20th century. And about the series, Baltz famously said, and you know, one of the great art quotes of all time, inside those buildings, quote, you don't know whether they're manufacturing pantyhose or Megadeth. Yeah. <laughs> so here is you making a body of work about sites of labor, you making a body of work about facades, just as Baltz's new industrial parks is in part about facades. And, and you don't show us visually what's being made inside. Were you informed only by the series? Were you informed by the quote too? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'd like to think I was informed by the aesthetic, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and sort of, I mean, I love the the use of the word riff, right? Definitely riffing off the aesthetic. and But also, I think, this idea of anonymity with, within these buildings or the, the idea of anonymity within the, in regards to the workers in the buildings, right? What was interesting when I first started out the series is I, you know, began to realize that these garment factories were in any type of building that you can imagine. You know, some look like warehouses, some look like apartment buildings, some look like houses, some look like the corner liquor store. And at first they look very sort of anonymous, very closed off. But when I began photographing, noticed that there was, you know, always some type of signage on the windows or the doors, you know, looking for, say, a cover stitch operator or an overlock operator. And sometimes these signs were in English, but also in other languages. So these signs are a stand in for the people that are inside. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, you know, were being a photographer standing on the curb you know, opposite the street, on the opposite side of the street, you would never know that there were people in these buildings otherwise. Oftentimes, you know, the windows were would be masked over with fabric, with muslin, or with paper patterns. Uh, so as you could not see inside, even if there were, you know, windows, which there are in some, on some of them. So yes, I think, you know, Baltz was, Baltz's work is, you know, hugely influential influential on that series. Although the aesthetics vary, you know, in my work, I feel like Baltz was very successful at sort of creating a kind of typology with that series. Whereas my work is in color, you know, the buildings vary. And then there's a text component as well to that piece, which takes the interviews I had done with, with garment workers and sort of encapsulates a narrative of fear and paranoia that takes place after an immigration raid. I think one of the kind of formal pictorial Baltz things you do is is within the pictures painting is referenced. So, for example, Starline Fashion from 2000 has these tonally matched like teals in squares in the picture. And Baltz had forever by this point been winking at painting with his compositions. And for me, Starline Fashion is you winking at Baltz going, God, isn't this a terrible Albers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my relation to Bolts, I, whom I never met, 
You lived in Europe during much of your professional career. Yeah, it was, you know, definitely an aesthetic one. But, you know, he was uh, represented by the same gallery that I'm represented by for years. And I remember early when I early on when I was um, taken on by his gallery, you know, I wasn't making the gallery any money at all. <laughs> I mean, in fact, I might I might have been having them lose on <laughs> lose money me, which I think happens, right? But his photographs were selling for, you know, obscene amounts of money. And his work was basically funding my work through the gallery. And I remember one time I was at a studio in what was called the Women's Building. It wasn't the Women's Building anymore, but it was the same building near Chinatown. And I got a, a call on the payphone from Louis Baltz because that was because that was my phone number at the time. And he was calling from Gallery Luizotti. <laughs> he was, you know, uh, visiting the gallery and, and um, I'm sure doing some business. And he was curating a show or something. And he was interested in Maria's Great Expedition. <laughs> and I happened to pick up the phone, <laughs> luckily, and spoke with him briefly. We were ne- never able to meet up. Uh, I think, you know, he was pretty busy and I was you know, struggling at the time, um, taking the bus, probably, I don't know, but we just were never able to meet up. But it was, I remember feeling this surge of excitement, you know, hearing from somebody I greatly admired. And later, being in the same gallery that (laughs) he was represented by, there's this weird kind of, you know, connection even there, but never met the man, unfortunately. So this series, Manuela, S-T-I-T-C-H-E-D, features buildings with with brick, pretty flat, straight, but most importantly, fronts you can't see through. You know, there might be small windows, but, you know, if you walked into what's in the picture, you'd bruise yourself up pretty good. Before long, the work, you transitioned to making a body of work in 0203 called Lavendaria, We'll have images on manpodcast.com, but you're standing outside laundromats in East or Near East LA looking in. And we are looking in transparent windows. So we've gone from not being able to see in to the windows and glass doors or plastic doors, whatever, standing as kind of a wink at the picture plane and then looking beyond it. I mean, among other things, this series is a giant riff on the picture plane and optics and on sight. At the risk of asking a really simplistic question, having spent a couple of years standing outside building you couldn't see into and grappling with a Baltian body of work that was also not about seeing inside, was seeing inside and optics and perception and human relations in a different way interesting or motivating? Well, what I was doing at the time was photographing storefronts of the east side where I was living, of Los Angeles, east side of Los Angeles. And, it, you know, it started off as, you know, I had done the the garment factory work and I wanted to continue with a similar type of work. I had just learned the 4x5 camera and how to use it. You know, it's big, unwieldy view camera. It's somewhat difficult to use. And I wanted to continue using it. So a lot of times with photography, uh, equipment kind of steers the way a little bit. <laughs> and so I wanted to continue working with 4x5. I love the fact that it, 
it created this negative that had this incredible resolution. I could print these photographs very large without losing any detail at all. And I was very, very interested in the street life of East Los Angeles at the time I was living in Boyle Heights. So I decided to apply the same technique, basically, uh, that I used in Memoir Stitched to the storefronts of East Los Angeles and, you know, started setting up camera, various different types of stores, liquor stores, corner mini mart, you know, water stores, <laughs> just, you know, whatever was on mostly Cesar Chavez Boulevard, but other streets, main streets in Boyle Heights. And I started noticing this sort of interesting type of graffiti, which was etched into the windows of many of the stores. So what had happened is this etching liquid that people use to etch into, say, a mirror, a design into a mirror, was being used by taggers to etch into the glass of a window on a storefront. And so this etching liquid was sort of like a paint and they would use a brush to do the tag. And a lot of times these sort of drips would fall off the tag onto the window and you'd have these really drippy looking tags that were sort of translucent. And I noticed that at night they almost glowed because of the way that the light was hitting them. So at the same time, I noticed a particular laundromat that had this sort of drippy looking etched tag and it was in across the entire almost the entire storefront and it was quite beautiful but quite disruptive as well right so I photographed that as part of you know photographing the storefronts of uh, Cesar Chavez Boulevard and originally I had photographed the laundromat at sort of an oblique angle. I was thinking about, you know, the Edward Hopper sort of uh, oblique angle, you know, nighttime scenes, right, in his paintings. And so I sort of went with that visual. It didn't work, so I went fully frontal on the laundromat, uh, developed the neg, you know, this color negative, and made a print from it and, like, was wowed, you know. I hadn't noticed the upside-down flag in the window which I really feel was placed as an emblem of protest. Yes, Lavanderia, number one, exactly. And so I continued with that thread, photographing laundromats and sort of changing it up a little bit to going outside of the eastern Los Angeles area and going into Montebello, Pico Rivera, different communities, and sometimes photographing laundromats that did not have uh, graffiti tags. So, you know, and also became interested in the ways that people use the space of the laundromat, right? So obviously they're there to uh, wash clothes, but, you know, meals get eaten, television gets watched, you know, books are read, people, you know, take their children and need to uh, entertain them in some way, or the children entertain themselves. That becomes a big part of the series, I think, as you look beyond, you know, the membrane of the window that sometimes does not or does have graffiti on it. I want to wrap up by talking about your view from here pictures, which might be the most kind of lusciously beautiful things you've ever made. Oh, thank you. I sometimes wonder why people like them. (laughs) Oh, they're gorgeous. I mean, they're just flat out gorgeous. 
<laughs> so let me, the, 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 the conceptual undergirding here, let me set up real fast. You are in the homes of makers, of artists, and you are looking out their windows. In some of them. Some of them, yes, yeah, some of them. In some of them. The ones I have in my notes to bring up are those, <laughs> which reveals something about me. And those are actually the most popular ones. Those are the ones that everybody finds most compelling. You are not alone. So here for not the first time in your practice, we have you and a camera and looking at windows and looking at or through windows. And I keep noticing in, you know, about a 25-year period here, this 20-year period here, this, this keeps happening again and again. There, there are obvious modernist pictorial reasons for this. But maybe just more simply, why did you want to look from the inside out with the, with the window very much in between and evident in your print? Well, you know, the series evolved through, you know, my wanderlust, basically. I, I um, love to uh, road trip. And so... I would take photographs, obviously, but many of these are, you know, good travel pictures, right? Like everybody takes. And I felt like, you know, I need to make better use of this time I'm spending photographing. And the way that I often work that I sort of described in my photographs of, you know, the East Side storefronts is that I just photograph. I photograph and then I look through the photographs and, you know, then something hits, something that sort of crystallizes an idea. And that's what I did with this series. So one of the first photographs that was done from that series is the one called Toyo that was taken at Manzanar. So I was on a road trip with my son along the 395 and decided to go visit Manzanar internment, you know, campsite. It's like a historic, national historic site, um, you know, there's different names for these places, uh, relocation center, incarceration centers. They had reconstructed a bunker where the Japanese and Japanese Americans would live while incarcerated. And I had known about Toyo Miyatake and his photography of Manzanar. At the same time, I was looking at Ansel Adam Mountains, right? These beautiful snow-capped Eastern Sierra Mountains. And... You know, I don't know if you know this, but as you look on the Wikipedia page for Toyo, it is the portrait image there is by Ansel Adams. Yeah, yeah. I know that picture just reflexively. I mean, it's a, yeah, exactly. one of the most famous artist portraits of the American 20th century, probably. Right. And so these personalities, both photographers in vastly different life circumstances, are collapsed in that photograph for me. You know, it's like Adams is there, but we're seeing ostensibly, right, what Toyo's view would have been from inside his dwelling. Now, again, these are reconstructed bunkers. So this is not Toyo's bunker per se, right? But it's like his bunker. I don't believe in photographic truth, so go on. <laughs> so... I'm photographing from inside the bunker. You know, the window is up placed so high that I had to get a little piece of rock from the outside and bring it in so I could get just a little bit higher so that the the frame would match my photographic frame. And still, it isn't perfect. I think that that image is sort of the key to the whole series. This idea of being in the place that the person or the artist would have been in looking onto the landscape, but not having 
really any idea of what they were thinking or what they saw, right? And thinking about historical figures in that way, right? And using the window as a framework to express the unknown or to express this idea of not being able to understand the past or to fully know the past, right? And so that photograph got the series started. And I proceeded to photograph the windows of historic figures and of artists. So there's an image that was taken at, you know, Noah Purifoy's Outdoor Museum. There are several windows that are taken from uh, Cabot Yerkes' place in Desert Hot Springs, California. And the last window that's part of the series of um, Laura Aguilar's bedroom window. So I photographed her bedroom window when she, after she passed, about a year after she passed. And yeah, it's sort of, I mean, I think of these images in a way as sort of as portraits, but dealing with the vision of the person looking out a window, right, as we often do. The blurred landscape represents for me, you know, the unknown, not being able to be inside the person's head not to completely know their thoughts about what they were looking at and what they thought their life might become. Fantastic. Christina Fernandez, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is the first exhibition in more than a quarter century to examine the work of Robert Motherwell, a major figure who shaped post-war art. Offering new insights into his evolution as an artist and his impact on modernism, the exhibition is organized by guest curator Susan Davidson and features a selection of 56 visually compelling works from throughout the artist's career, including 12 paintings from the Moderns collection. Although Motherwell was equally proficient as a collagist, printmaker, and draftsman, it is Motherwell's expansive sense of painting that this retrospective explores. Beginning with the abstracted figurative works that dominated Motherwell's first decade of painting as he emerged in the New York art world of the early 1940s, the exhibition highlights the depth of his 50-year career. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth from June 4th to September 17th. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez Munoz implements a playful, witty style often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Nolan Jimbo joins me to discuss Endless at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. The exhibition brings together art that touches upon the concept of infinity, including works by Hiroshi Sugimoto, David Lamellis, Edel Adnan, and Charles Gaines. It's on view through April 14th, 2024. Nolan Jimbo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. What about 
endlessness or, or the idea or concept or visuals related to infinity, do you think has held artists' interest going back to, you know, like at least Poussin in the European tradition and probably even farther back in other traditions? Well, I would say right now, what's of interest about this idea is the fact that infinity is, of course, impossible to convey, represent in full. And so I, I was really interested in, in the idea because it forces artists to adopt strategies of abstraction or conceptualism or poetry even to even begin to approach this impossible topic. And I would actually say it's probably the fact that this idea exceeds representation entirely is probably what makes it such a time-tested, time-old tradition within art history dating back millennia, as you mentioned. And they keep trying. <laughs> and they keep trying. <laughs> and they keep trying, yes. As you were putting this installation together, did you think about whether there are analogs to these ideas of endlessness, these concepts of infinity, in other media, poetry, fiction, etc.? Yes. I mean, I think, actually, I would turn to the work of Etel Adnan, actually, who is, of course, known to us in the contemporary art world as a painter, but who is perhaps better known in the world at large as a poet and a writer. And she's someone who, throughout her career, has sort of referred to water as this sort of source or material of the infinite, not only because of its vastness and its depth, but primarily because of its capacity to actually reflect perhaps the shifting nature and, and depth of our inner lives. There's a sort of incredibly introspective quality to both her painting and her writing that for me was really sort of impactful in, in organizing the show. When I saw you had Adnan here, I thought of the Sugimoto in the show, which is called Time Exposed. So Adnan's great California subject, of course, is Mount Tamalpais, which is in Marin County. And, and Mount Tamalpais, of course, basically ends in, you know, in, in, in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, there's a little bit of land there, but not a lot. And so kind of the Sugimoto series of works picks up where the Adnan leaves off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, that pairing, it's actually, it actually came about an install, it finally began to make sense, as these things often do. But you know, the Sugimoto works, which are, of course, about the horizon line and looking outward and sort of the limits of perception or visual perception, I think it pairs actually really beautifully with the Adnan, which is so much about, as I mentioned, introspection, about the individual even, about the individual spirit, right? There's a sort of like interiority versus outwardness that I think really materializes between those two works. Which, which are paired or which are installed directly across from each other in the gallery. The Sugimoto is, of course, called Time Exposed, and there's no sense of time in the Sugimotos, right? They are not obviously during the day or evening or morning. One doesn't know how long the shutter is being held open. There's no sense of time, even though we, it's visible, even though we, we know it's there. I guess the one signifier of, 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 of time in each individual picture is, is how the water looks. And so as you walk around the gallery, how does one, what does one notice in the water and how might that relate to the idea of 
a true in infinite or a true endlessness. So you're right that, I mean, Sugimoto actually, when he first began making this series, I believe in 1976, he actually thought of this view of, of the horizon as sort of a prehistoric view or a pre-human view to sort of have this fantasy or this view of the earth prior to human intervention. So there's actually the sense that you're actually perhaps looking to the past when you look in these works. But in, in terms of how I installed them in the show, I very intentionally installed them so that you, as you walk through the gallery, you're going forward and then backwards in time. So actually the first photograph that you see, I believe is from 1989 or 1990, which is sort of a later work in the series. And then the second work you see is from 1980, which is of the Caribbean Sea. And that sort of back and forthness continues across the 11 works that are on view right now. And so I was really interested in sort of portraying time as this abstraction in and of itself that actually in some ways folds in on itself through Tsukimoto's series. You know, the theme of the show, as you mentioned, is, is infinity and in many ways is the limits of perception. And I think in sort of abstracting time itself with the series, it's a way of sort of trying to think about the ways in which the things we take for granted actually are abstractions in and of themselves, if you look at them closely enough, as Sugimoto does um, in the series. The Sugimoto prompted me to look up a work that is in your collection, but not in the show. It's called Fall, Winter, Spring, Summer, Lake Michigan. It's a 2004 05 work by Kathy Opie that for many years hung in the Obama White House. And when I called it up, I, I realized this makes me sound very stupid. When I called it up, I was astonished at how different a related idea looked. <laughs> it's easy to have an idea of an ocean infinite or a very large lake infinite, but the way those two photographers present something is completely unlike. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think it, you know, it has to do with this idea of placelessness as well. You know, actually Sugimoto did photograph Lake Michigan as part of not this sort of body of work, but as a sort of other series of seascapes. So there's this added sort of parallel between Opie and Sugimoto there. But again, it's like the, way, the ways in which time are impossible to locate in Sugimoto's photographs, the same can be said for place. And I think for me in this moment when there's so much particularly within museums and galleries right now, there's so much tied to sort of legibility or immediacy or transparency on the part of that are sort of demanded of artists and art objects. This very refusal to be specific in some ways in the Sugimoto works and the other works in the show felt really sort of urgent or, or prescient for this moment. What is the David Lamellis you included and why? Yeah, so this is a sculpture from 1966 it's titled Four Changeable Plaques, or that's the English title. And it's four aluminum strips that actually David leaves to the discretion of the organizing curator or collector. I was wondering about that. Yeah, to, to configure in response to the architecture. And so the idea is that every time that it's shown, it's left open to the possibility of a new configuration or a, or a change. So this idea that the artwork is actually never concluded, it's never static, it's ever evolving for me was felt very directly related actually to, to the idea of the infinite. So how did you install it? So in this case, I mean, there are of course spatial constraints. The gallery is like 
I want to say 500 square feet or something quite small. So in this case, I, I installed it in this configuration that he refers to as a precarious cross. This is how it was shown in his original, in the original exhibition in 1966. But this show, Endless, is going to be up for 365 days, exactly, a full year. We're going to do a series of rotations over the next few months. And so I'm really curious to figure out a new configuration for the work. And David and I are in conversation about that right now. The fourth work in the show is is a pretty early Charles Gaines. It's a, a Gaines of, of seven works on paper, all in ink. Before we talk about the Gaines, what you know, what is the 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 visual thing we see on the on the on the surface of the paper in the seven works? Yeah. So from a distance in this image that you see online, there are these sort of geometric, faint geometric forms that almost look like shadows that as you go from left to right across the seven drawings, the shadow that sort of, sort of seems to emanate further right across each drawing. But if you look really closely, each of these shadow-like forms is comprised of minuscule numbers. And so this is a work from 1973 and 1974 called Regression. It's the fourth body of work in, in the series. And it's actually the first instance in which, in which Gaines uses grids and numbers as tools in, in his work. And so it's a real turning point for him in his practice at large. But yeah, it's really what's amazing about it is that it looks completely different close up than it does from a distance. And for me right now, as a curator, I'm always looking for ways to get visitors to slow down and to focus and to like really look closely for more than five seconds. And so I'm hoping that the sort of, you know, optical play in this work prompts people to do so. How does it relate to the infinite? When you look at these drawings really close up, they, they truly feel like they could go on forever. They, they, they seem to get smaller and smaller and smaller as you look more closely. It's possible even to get lost in some of them because the numbers become so dense. And so for me, there was this like sort of experience of infinite in the intimate as you get closer and closer to the drawing. But also the series is organized around sort of like these arbitrary mathematical principles that Gaines creates, right? They're based around a formula. And so in theory, this didn't actually happen, but in theory, the series could continue forever, right? And so there were, I guess, a few different ways in which, yeah, the idea sort of constant or the, the idea of the infinite sort of constellates the series. Excellent. Nolan Jimbo, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Welcome back. Next up, Rachel Fetterman joins me to discuss Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, a survey of Riley's drawing practice primarily drawn from the artist's own collection. Fetterman co-curated the show with Cynthia Burlingham and Jay Clark. The show's at The Hammer through May 28th before traveling to the Art Institute of Chicago and the Morgan Library in New York. An excellent exhibition catalog was published by Modern Art Press London. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about 30 bucks, which is a heck of a deal. Rachel Fetterman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Y'all's exhibition starts with Riley's earliest drawings, or at least her earliest surviving drawings, made when she was a student at Cheltenham Ladies College, the most British-sounding school name ever, in the mid to late 1940s. They're 
very traditional drawings after plaster casts, the figure and whatnot. And they're full of engagements with Surratt, Matisse, Munch, Clay. Are there elements and interests in these early drawings that you think stay with Riley really through to the end of the show? Yeah. I mean, I think I think what people are going to be surprised about when they come to see the show, and I think people kind of expect something, right? When you say Bridget Riley, people have a certain expectation of what they're going to see. And I think what's really going to surprise people, and I think what's most illuminating about the show, is the way that we're drawing these links to the early work, where she's really looking at art historical precedents. And What's surprising is, I think, how much you can sense the through line from those early works to the later works, but in a very indirect way. So I think it really comes down to close looking. And I think that that's what the show is drawing out, is that in her earlier work where she's making, you know, figurative drawings, landscape drawings, paintings, she's really learning about the process of looking And the artists that she's looking at are artists who she admires for those reasons. So these are artists who are also doing a particular kind of close looking. And in particular, I think what is attractive to her is artists who are very explicit in the way that they're abstracting from nature so that there's a representational component to the work, but it's also highly abstracted. I I think to that point is the drawings that Riley makes um, at the end of the 1950s. They are and paintings too, for that matter. They're, they're pointillist informed. And I, and I think here at the end of the 50s, we see Riley becoming Riley rather than becoming an academic descendant of masters. So I'm thinking of a 1959 drawing such as Recollections of Scotland, which sure, it has some Sonia Delaunay in it, but only a little bit. And a drawing for a 1959 pointillist painting called Blue Landscape that is sort of informed by pointillism, but which is cross-hatched in ways that seem to bring color relationships and lines to Riley's attention. Anyway, broader point being, I think this 59 moment is a pretty big moment for her. What is she exploring then, and, and what does she find in it? So I think a couple of things are happening in that moment. So on the one hand, you mentioned Recollections of Scotland, which is a black and white work. And here you really see her exploring the idea of contrast, right? So you have this very stark division of black and white, which is something that, of course, is what she becomes known for in the 1960s. And then on the other hand, you see her exploring the work of Georges Seurat and pointillism. And this is really how she enters into color. And, you know, with Riley, it's it's actually very interesting because she was so sort of single-mindedly focused on drawing for a long period of time when she was in school that painting posed a real challenge to her and color posed a real challenge to her. And she's described the work of Georges Seurat as providing an entry into color for her. So you really see her beginning to explore color. And it's a bit ironic because she kind of enters this moment where she's doing color and then she almost immediately pulls back with that iconic breakthrough work of the 1960s. But then she comes back to color later on. So everything kind of connects. It's interesting. She gets to color the way Matisse got to color, which is through Surratt. And indeed, Riley uh, makes a work in 1955 called Blue Interior that's reproduced in the catalog you know, that is torn from Matisse's oeuvre. I mean, like, it's way too direct. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think what's what's really been interesting to me in working on the show and getting to know, especially these earlier works, and also in talking to Bridget Riley about her work, is to recognize how much she really struggled early on. 
I think that we tend to think of Riley as this extraordinarily self-assured artist, you know, as if she kind of came out of, you know, the womb already fully formed as an artist. And that's really not the case. And what's, I think, fascinating about those early works and, you know, those copies directly from old masters or from modern masters is that you really see an artist struggling to find her voice. And a lot of what you'll see in the show from the uh, the late 1940s, the 1950s, is an artist really looking for her artistic voice and trying to figure out what is going to be her contribution to the history of art. I, I kind of thought as I read the catalog that London of the 1950s, think Riley or David Hockney, is way more interested in Matisse than London of the aughts, tens, or twenties was. <laughs> <laughs> in about 1960, so just after this moment, Riley reduces from, if you will, pointillist informed works to really simple constructions, what we would now call hard edge. They're, they're almost patterns sometimes, and they're just black and white. It seems like a big leap. What motivated her to reduce so totally, and why did she decide it worked? You know, I think that I think that there was a lot going on in her life, both personally and professionally. And she describes returning to her studio and creating an all black painting. And this just isn't right for her. And so she then goes back and she creates the work called Kiss, which we have a study for in the show, which is really a work of hard edge abstraction. It looks uh, similar to an Ellsworth Kelly. And she describes the point where the black and the white are intersecting and where the black shapes are almost touching as a kind of a flash. And I think that this is where she realizes that she really wants to kind of commit herself to creating those moments of perceptual flash in her work. And that is when she starts to create the works of, you know, perceptual optical abstraction that we know her best for. Let me address Kelly for a moment because the catalog sent me down a little rabbit hole. Kiss dates to 1961. Ellsworth Kelly starts doing curved shapes within and next to shapes that are not curved in that same year. It seems not super likely that she knew what he was doing at that exact moment. So it seems to me we should consider her having gotten there without him? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think it's fair to assume that she wasn't looking at Ellsworth Kelly and saying, aha, you know, that's something that I'd like to try. You know, another thing to keep in mind is, and something that I write about in the catalog, you know, Riley was working for an advertising firm and there was a lot of this kind of hard edge design happening in the world of advertising too. So I think that there are lots of ways that you can kind of arrive at this type of this type of uh, composition. And I think it's fair to assume that, you know, like every artist, Riley is, taking in everything around her. So whether that's hard edge abstraction, you know, there there was a show of Los Angeles hard edge abstraction in uh, London in 1960. Also unclear if Riley saw that show, but these things are in the air. So she's definitely taking all of this in, whether directly or indirectly. John McLaughlin had been doing hard edge for a whole decade at that point. So yeah, I mean, he wasn't doing curved forms, at least not that I recall. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the Kelly, you know, the leap to Kelly, but and the comparison to Kelly, but Kelly was not alone. Right, exactly. In 1963, Riley makes a 30-inch square picture called Shift that seems like a pretty significant moment, and I think the curators of the show think it was a pretty significant moment because in the catalog there's a two-page spread related to drawings for it. 
In a conversation with with y'all, Riley says she was holding on to the idea of shift, of, of the composition, if you will, and shift as being or representing a torso in movement, perhaps bending, perhaps bending and moving back and forth. Why was it important for Riley to hold on to a figural reference as late as 63? And what do you think having a figural reference allowed her to do? Well, it's it's interesting because she, you know, she had a, a kind of a real devotion to her teacher, Sam Rabin, from Goldsmith, Goldsmiths College, London. She had attended Goldsmiths from 1949 to 1952. She took many classes with Sam Rabin, and this was really about academic draftsmanship, but she credits Rabin so much with you know everything, really, with teaching her how to see, which is really, at the end of the day, what her work is about. And I think, you know, I think on some level, she wanted to honor that education that she had and the significance of it. You know, there's a there's a time when she is saying in an interview, you know, that Sam Rabin sort of didn't understand what she was doing or that, you know, he seemed a bit disappointed that she had gone this direction and that she it seemed important to her for her audiences to understand that this purely abstract work actually came out of a tradition. And so I think on some level, that's why she's still kind of raising that figural reference when she's talking about this work. There are a couple of drawings for shift here. One of them is a, I don't know, fairly straightforward preparatory drawing of of the sort we're familiar with. And the second one is a so-called scale study. What is a scale study and why was it important to Riley? So this, the scale studies are, you know, where she's actually trying to, to work at the scale, presumably, of the finished painting. So she's working on what is the actual scale of, uh, of the finished painting going to be. And she describes the way that she creates her, her compositions as sort of putting the elements through their paces. So in this case, you have these triangles and she's sort of playing with the angles and, you know, the scale and she puts it through its paces. And that's how she arrives at the final composition, which, you know, as you know, she doesn't necessarily execute on her own. So these studies become a very important way for her to work through all of the issues, whether it be, you know, movement, opposition, and scale. At about this time, Riley begins, or begins, question mark, working on graph paper, which is something she will hold on to and do for really quite some time. Why did she migrate to drawing on graph paper? Why, why did she find it useful? Well, I would imagine that the transition to graph paper is a purely practical consideration. You know, because she's working with geometry, the graph paper, I think, just makes sense for her. So it's it's not, you know, I don't think that there's any uh, anything, you know, more profound than that. But again, I think the graph paper has sort of given people the impression that she's this very sort of scientific, you know, and even technologically oriented artist. And she's really not. I think the graph paper just kind of gives her a way to play in some ways without having to maybe worry as much about, you know, the kind of the matrix. There's a drawing from 1963 on graph paper that, as I read the catalog, I thought to myself, oh, that's that's a CAD drawing, computer-aided design. And then, of course, I remembered that in 1963, there was no such thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. And that one also has that sense of the kind of torsion. Yes. Big the time. idea of like a, you know, and it does, it almost, it does look like a mechanical drawing. It has these diagonal lines that give that sense of torsion. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I and I do think that 
you know, what's what's nice about seeing these drawings is they they do look like cat drawings. But when you get close to them, you can see that, you know, they're they're really handmade. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to get a couple of those for uh, manpodcast.com for the show page. And what might have been my favorite part of the catalog, you wrote about your interest in Bridget Riley and television and what <laughs> you call <laughs> television based art practices. So first, what brought you to thinking about Bridget Riley and TV? So this is this relates to to her her work at the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency. So, you know, I mean, I think people might be surprised to learn that Riley was doing this work for an advertising agency from the 1950s until as late as 1964, not in a full-time way at that point because her career as an artist had already kind of taken off. So she was exposed to all of these kinds of branding exercises, you know, that were being created for television. And so I think it's, one almost has to assume you know, given the era that she was aware of what was happening in the realm of television, whether as a spectator or as a creator on the advertising side. What were TV test cards and why do you think she saw them? (laughs) TV test cards were cards that were broadcast just before programs started in order to kind of uh, modulate the picture and to make sure that things were kind of online and that the contrasts were accurate. And I even remember these from when I was a kid, um, that occasionally you would see these broadcast cards in color, of course. But when Riley would have begun making these works that she's known for, they would have been in black, white and gray. And there is a kind of startling similarity to these things. And again, it's not to suggest in any way that, you know, she's ripping off television test cards. It's just to say that this was part of the environment, you know, the visual environment around her. Yeah, it's how relationships between black and white and gray were made present in a new medium. Exactly. I'll I'll try to find a test card and, and, and put it on the show page. But the example you reproduced in the catalog is is extremely convincing. And in in the essay, you I don't know what the word to use here is. You, you note that Riley had or, or almost certainly had a certain relationship with the BBC, not personally between you know herself and and the corporation, but as a consumer fascinated by the emergence of a medium. What, in terms of her practice, should we understand as as her relationship to the BBC and what it was sending out into cathode ray tubes? Well, I mean, I think the I think what what interests me is, you know, what I, what I kind of try to explore in the essay is this kind of alternate reality where Riley could have become a video artist. You know, I think that there are artists who have the same interest in perception that she does and who are uh, looking at television and seeing it, you know, and I'm thinking here of, you know, Nam June Paik, for example, um, and who are seeing it as an arena you know, rife with possibilities for formal explorations, not even to speak of the kind of utopian democratization of art that a lot of artists were thinking about at the time, which of course never really came to pass. And, you know, she's spoken about her admiration for Bruce Nauman's videos. And so I think that there is a kind of path where one can imagine an artist like Bridget Riley pursuing her interests in, you know, that flash of perception 
into the realm of new media. But what is striking about her, and I think what makes her so unique, is that you have these kinds of what I call radical tendencies, but they're sort of tempered by this real devotion to the materials of, you know, classical art, right? So she is really devoted to paint on board or canvas, you know, pencil or ink on paper. And so she's really exploring these new ideas through traditional media. In 1967, Riley begins moving from black and white and grays, such as uh, not only in her early drawings, but in kind of those BBC test patterns we were talking about, moving from black and white and gray to color. 1967, as you note in your essay, is also the year in which the BBC began transmitting or broadcasting in color. Coincidence or not? <laughs> and, and so then why color? Why did she migrate to color? So again, not to suggest in any way that Riley was migrating to color because the BBC started broadcasting right, to color. Right, but again, it's just, right exa exactly. And, you know, she had already started introducing different tonalities into her gray works, you know, a bit earlier than that. But, you know, I think for Riley, it's it comes down to she's always moving forward, you know, and I think that's that's where I, I sense that this show is going to be really important because I do think that, especially in the United States, where I think she's less well known than she is in the UK, people do tend to associate her with kind of like one or two images, you know, like those really iconic paintings from the early 1960s. And she really is an artist who's always moving forward. And so I think she had kind of exhausted what she felt she could accomplish in black and white. And so then she started to transition into grays. And then she kind of, you know, had completed or accomplished what she wanted to with grays. And then the next logical step for her was really to move into color. So when she begins adding color, the work gets more visually complicated and really kind of right away. Was that complication something she was mindfully seeking or was it just a product of what happens when you add color to the forms within which she was already working? So I think, I think it's really, she doesn't really jump into very complicated compositions right away. So if you look at something like we have a study for a uh, work called Late Morning, which is really her first work fully in color that doesn't use black. This is 1967-68. I think when you look at a work like that, you see she's actually kind of starting in a very restrained way. So you have vertical stripes in a very limited palette. And what she's really trying to explore are, you know, it's kind of the passages, you know, so it's she talks about wanting to create a composition that releases light as you look at it. So, you know, it's always been about for her about the experience of viewing the work, right? Because it's so much about perception and that's still the goal. So I think she's still kind of tentatively stepping into how is she going to release light as you look at these pieces? And when she begins, she begins, again, very tentatively with vertical stripes, with a limited palette, playing with the intervals and, you know, expanding the sheets. You know, she she discovers pretty quickly that in order to achieve what she wants in color, the size of the work needs to grow. And so you'll see in the exhibition that, you know, as she begins with color, the sheets grow larger, you know, and the paintings, you know, correspondingly do grow larger. So I think she begins tentatively, but you're right. She very quickly transitions and she, she had already begun this with the gray tonal works into these incredible ribboned works. And they become very kind of Baroque 
by the 1970s. And we have a couple of works in the show. You know, there's one called Green and Magenta in Two Color Twists. And there's another piece in the show called Study for Orphean Elegy 2. And these are, you know, gorgeous works where you have these very complicated undulating lines that are sort of intersecting and the palette is really lush even though she's not using a lot of colors she's not using those white intervals anymore in a work like that you know so the sheet is completely covered and interestingly at that moment she actually kind of pulls back again you know I think for her it almost becomes too much about the complexity of the composition. And in the early 1980s, she actually pulls back from that and goes back to the vertical stripes. You know, so I think you do sort of see her with color kind of, there's a real process of trial and error of trying to figure out what it is she's trying exactly to do with these colored works. So as you note, complication increases almost nonstop within the work from the late 1960s into the 80s. And then the show continues into the mid-aughts. There are, you know, there, there, there is a building of more colors and more lines and more movement within those lines. Are, are, are we watching Riley building facility with a language and thus able to do more stuff, which often happens with artists as they kind of reach their mature phases, or are we seeing something more specific than that? I think it is something a little bit different. And I think it also speaks to the fact that Riley has held on to these studies for all these years, because I do think that there's a recursive quality in her work. You know, she does return to earlier works. She does take inspiration from earlier works. And so I think it's, it's not to say that the work isn't developing in a linear way. It's just to say that as it develops, she's really pulling from the lessons of her earlier works. And so, you know, I think what you see, for example, In the 1980s, she introduces this form that she calls a zig. And it's really like a it's a it's a diagonal line that she sets within the vertical stripe. So, you know, she kind of she moves away from these undulating lines, which are, you know, so kind of poetic and extravagant back to these vertical stripes. And then she sort of starts to say, well, what can I do to create movement within these vertical stripes? And so she introduces these little diagonal lines, almost like paint strokes within the vertical stripes. And so, you know, I think that you do see this kind of, you know, it's a constant questioning, I think. I think she's got a very kind of inquisitive practice where she's constantly questioning what she's doing. And I think that's why her work continues to be really interesting and also why the later work, it speaks to the earlier work, but she's really always developing. Yeah, those little vertical lines start really little, such as in Study 5 September from 1985, you know, where there may be one thirtieth of the length of the vertical lines. And within a couple of years, they just take over. Right. Yeah. And so you have these, right, exactly. So then you have these larger passages of single color, which is really very different. And I think also at this time, you know, she talks about a kind of a temporal quality and a kind of a slowing down. And I do think that if you look at these pieces, you can kind of sense that there is a kind of slowing down, you know, those early works kind of pack a punch, right? Those those works that she's best known for, you know, it's, it's a perceptual punch, right? It really hits you the moment you look at it. And of course, the experience changes the longer you spend with it. But with these later works, I think you really have a kind of a slowing down of the visual experience that is very interesting. And I think in some ways really speaks to her early connection to post-impressionism and pointillism. Yeah, I think that's, I think we see that in like the, the, the works from the aughts in which there are fewer, 
you know, air quotes, lines, because they're not lines, they're curved shapes. But there, 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 there seems to be fewer, fewer marks within the field, fewer sections within the field, you know, like we're, we're moving in. Yeah, I think you do see that. And I also think that, you know, there's a period of time and which is which is still happening where she's starting to paint directly on walls. And so some of the studies, you can see that these kind of curved shapes, they're breaking the frame. And that's because these are preparatory for works that are actually going to be executed on walls, which is a, a really kind of interesting transition for her, I think, into the environment, into the space of the gallery and also connects, I think, to some of her earlier explorations, you know, there was this piece in her second show, her second solo show in 1963 at Gallery One, where it was a kind of environment, a painted environment. And she kind of immediately recognized, no, that's not right. And she didn't pursue that. But I think later in her career, she's kind of returning to this idea of a kind of enveloping experience, but in a much more nuanced way. Yes, Bridget Riley is 92 and, 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 and still moving in new directions. Rachel Fetterman, thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.